when Pastor first told me I was going to be preaching on this, I, I wasn't too excited about it. Um, but the, the more that I read and the more that I began to study, and, and, and he and I were, were sitting in his office Wednesday morning and just talking back and forth, man, and the Spirit of God just fell and was just all over, um, all over our, our, our conversation. So I'm really excited to share this word with you um, this morning. So open your Bibles to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. <coughs> I want to start off with a, with a little story. <clears throat> Y'all have to forgive me. The reason why I didn't sing this morning, I'm getting over a cold and my voice is about gone, so just forgive me. But I wanted to start, it off, start off with a little story this morning. My uh, three-and-a-half-year-old daughter is the sweetest thing, and she just says the most random things. So anyway, I thought that this fit really well with, with, uh, with the message today. <clears throat> The other night I got home from work and she was sitting on my lap and I was just rubbing her back and just scratching her back and, and Sarah does this to her, you know, about every night before she goes to bed and, and, uh, and so she's just scratching her back and I said, Macy, daddy can't scratch your back like mommy can, can he? She said, no daddy, but just do your best. <laughs> she's three and a half, just do your best, dad. Um, and so anyway, I, I thought that that was really funny. I got a good kick out of that because uh, Nehemiah did his best. He did something that nobody else would do. That I'll give you a little, just want to give you a little history lesson real quick of, of kind of what is surrounding the book of Nehemiah so we kind of get what we're talking about. <clears throat> Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. Now, just a little history lesson real quick. Artaxerxes was the son of Xerxes, and Xerxes was Esther's husband. So essentially, Artaxerxes was neat, was Esther's stepson. And so, you know, if you all remember back, you know, with Esther, she basically got the children of Israel to start coming back into, out of captivity from Babylon. So the children of Israel spent about 70 years in captivity, and they had returned in two groups up to this point. Now, the first two groups had come back from Babylon and had gone back to Jerusalem, but the city walls stayed in ruins. They didn't rebuild them, okay? Now, a city wall that remains down is a sign of a city that really is easily plundered. It has no defenses. It, 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 can't, it, it can't fight off or, or even have any protection against an enemy. Now, here's the funny thing about this is that these walls, from, from the time that the first group of, of Israelites had returned back, it had been 90 years that the walls had laid in ruins. Now, that's a problem. That's just a little bit of a problem. But really, and I was praying about this this week, is that that is such a great reflection of us. Because oftentimes we get, we get carried away into captivity. You know, we, we start going our own way. Each one has turned to his, all to his own way. We've all gone our own way. And, and, and basically what's happened is we've been carried into captivity by the enemy, whether it be in our mind, our finances, you know, you name it. So we've been carried away. And when we finally get the realization, hey, I'm not supposed to be here. Then we return and we walk back and we go back into the city of God, the kingdom of God. We get back in our, in our place where we need to be, but we don't fortify ourselves. And if we don't fortify ourselves, the very same thing that took you away the first time can take you away the next time. How many times, maybe, anybody familiar with the scripture, as a dog returns to his vomit? Come, Second Peter, I believe. And the thing about it is, is that, you see, we, we get in these traps where we don't remove the things in our life that the sin that so easily besets us. And our walls lay ruined, ready for the enemy to come and pick us off. I mean, man, we're easy prey. And so the thing about it is, is that if, if you've been in captivity, okay, if you've been, you know, dealing with, let's say that you've been dealing with lust, if you've been dealing with lust and you realize, okay, I've been dealing with lust, man, I don't need to mess with this anymore. I need to return and go back to God. I need to get back in the, in the kingdom of God, get back in his presence. 
If you do that and then you just walk back in and like, all right, everything's all good, but you don't make any lifestyle changes, you've not fortified yourself. If you are tired and sick and tired of going back and doing the same things, it might be because you need to readjust your thinking and fortify the walls. We're too easy, man. I believe the devil sits back at some of us and man, like that. I, I, can, I can call this dude out anytime I want. And it's the truth. Because there's an aspect of it that we have to do our part. We have to build the walls. And for 90 years, these, children, these Israelites had sat right there and left those walls in ruins. That just don't even make sense to me. It shows a city of weakness and despair. One that really doesn't want to be protected, honestly. And so anyway, this is, this is kind of the little setup for this. And, and I want to get in and I want to talk about three aspects of, of building, of rebuilding the wall. We have this little, uh, this little saying in our office. And um, has anybody ever seen Despicable Me? You know, so you know when Gru, and, and he says, light bulb. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about? We say that in our office all the time. And, and the children of Israel hadn't had the light bulb moment. They hadn't had the awakening that pastor's been talking about the last few weeks. Either they didn't have the passion, the motivation, the leadership, whatever it was, they didn't have it in them to go back and start building that wall. I mean, it must have been a problem for somebody. It had to have been a problem for somebody. But guess what? Nobody said anything. It's just business as usual. And so Nehemiah did. Listen, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, verse 2. <clears throat> one of Nehemiah's kinsmen came to him. And it says, Hanani, one of my kinsmen, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them about the surviving Jews who had escaped exile and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who escaped exile are in great trouble and reproach. Underline that. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its fortified gates are destroyed by fire. Now after Nehemiah heard this, he did a couple of things. Nehemiah was so distraught about the fact that this was still going on that he wept. He just, I mean, he just started crying. He prayed, he repented, he fasted, and he worshiped. Let's go real quick and, and go on down a little bit further. And he says, listen to, listen to his prayer. <clears throat> In verse 4 he says, When I heard this, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and fasted and prayed constantly before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord of heaven, the great and terrible God who keeps covenant, loving kindness and mercy for those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to listen to the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you day and night for the Israelites, your servants. Listen to this. Confessing the sins of the Israelites which we have sinned against you. Hold on a minute. He doesn't just stop there. Then he says... Yes, I and my father's house have sinned against you. So he broke this thing down into three, basically three categories. He broke it down into himself, the individual is what we're going to start with. Then he talked about his father's house, his family. And then he talked about the entire nation, the congregation. And so those are the three areas that I'm going to talk about this morning as we get a little bit deeper in this study. How did the children of Israel ever end up in captivity to begin with? Sin, rebellion. But you know how it crept in? It crept in the progression that I just gave you. It first started with an individual, and then it went to a household, and then it went to the congregation. It's a cancer. It spreads. You see... 
How many of you in your circle of friends or group of friends have ever had your friends say something and start feeling a way or you've started feeling a negative way and then your, your friends are like, oh, yeah, that's right. I feel the same way. And then before you know it, people that you don't even know start feeling the same way. That's how politicians get elected. I'm not going to get on a political kick, I promise. But it goes, it, it goes in successive order that way. It starts with the individual. It started with Nehemiah. Nehemiah said, I believe that I can go build the, rebuild those walls. I can do it. And then he got his sphere of influence, the people around him, to begin to believe in him. And guess what they did? They gave him credibility with everybody else. Because what, what enables a person to do something mighty and incredible, it's only by the character that they hold when nobody else is looking. It's only by what the sphere of influence, the people that are around them that know them closely, who know what they're about, that says, listen, I can vouch for this dude. And that's what ended up happening. Turn to your neighbor and say, it starts with me. Listen, if we're not pursuing or seeking God for ourselves individually, we've already let down the first wall of defense. We've already given the enemy an inroad to get inside of us and start breaking that wall down. It is the, you are the first line of defense. I'm the first line of defense. Because if a thought creeps up in my mind, guess whose responsibility it is to take authority over it? It's mine. It's not pastor's. It's not my wife's. It's not my mom or my dad. It's not my friends. It is my responsibility to take my part and own my piece of it and, and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So that thing slips in my mind, and guess what? I can do one of two things. I can choose life or I can choose death. And both of those, either one of those, no matter what you do, it's contagious. It begins to catch on. So I can either choose life and begin to walk in the liberty of holiness. I can choose life and begin to, to live my life how Jesus wants me to. And my family benefits, my marriage benefits, my job benefits. Everything begins to benefit. But see, I can turn around and walk away from God too. And if I do, then everything begins to crumble down because I've let the first line of defense go. Any of you people in the military know how, how important that outer, that outer line is. It's critical. And you are it. It starts with you. Jesus called us to a personal relationship with him. It's wonderful when families and friends worship together. It's wonderful when congregations worship together. But more importantly and more than any of that, Jesus wants us to worship him ourselves. He wants it to come from me. That's where it starts. The individual is that outer wall. It's the wall that says, look, you've got to get past me before you come get anybody else. So many of us are scared and we're cowards and we try to do the, the, the flip opposite. We try to let everybody else stand in front of us. It's like I was praying this morning and, and declaring this morning, man, we are children of the king. We ain't got nothing to worry about. If the devil comes to attack us, guess what? Take him head on. But there are times and there, there are places for our friends and for the congregation. There are times for that. But, but sometimes it's really a test to us. For God to say, listen, I know you believe me when you're around your friends and your family. I know that you believe me when you're in this congregational setting. But do you believe me when it's just me and you? Do you take me at your word when it's just you and I? Because really, that's what I desire the most, is you and I. The individual is the outer part of the wall. It is the first line of defense. Nehemiah made a decision that he was going to do something about the fact that the walls were torn down. Go to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4. And then the king said to me, for what do you ask? And so I prayed 
to the God of heaven, and I said to him, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you'll send me to Judah, to the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may rebuild it. Notice how he didn't say that we might rebuild it. Nehemiah said that I may rebuild it. He took a personal responsibility to bringing God's city back to its place of glory. He took personal responsibility for rebuilding the kingdom of God. It's time for us to take personal responsibility and say that I may build it. Not the pastors, not the elders, not the worship team, not the youth ministry. That I may rebuild it. That I take responsibility. And Nehemiah did. He had resolved in his mind that it was a task that he was ready for and would do no matter what or who followed him. He also knew that the people would follow him because of his sphere of influence, because of the weight that, that came along with Nehemiah's name to be the cupbearer. Let me tell you, Artaxerxes and Nehemiah were boys. They were tight. They were homies. Because the, the cupbearer's job was essentially to taste the wine and drink the wine to make sure that there weren't any poison in it. <laughs> Anybody want that job? I mean... And so the king relied and, and really depended on Nehemiah to make sure that his drink was safe. And they got to be pretty good friends because when you're entrusting your life in somebody else's hands, you better be good with them. And so Nehemiah had the king behind him. And he asked, the, and the king basically said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to send letters to the governors and tell them that I need this and I need that and I need this. And the king did it. His sphere of influence, that brings us to the next point, the families, the sphere of influence. When I say family, I don't necessarily mean blood relatives. I mean, of course I do, but I mean that those people that are close to you, that are in your immediate sphere of influence, those people that when you speak, they listen, or those people that when they speak, you listen. You see, Nehemiah, had his, he had somebody on his back that could give him credibility. Once the individual makes the move to rebuild, that spills over into the oikos, the family. You see, how many of you have heard stories where you've got a family and, and none of them are following the Lord and then the spou one, you know, one spouse gets saved and, and, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, after, before long, you know, the, the other spouse gets saved and then the children start coming to church and it, it begins to spill over. It's, it's a domino effect. It spills, and that Greek word is oikos. It means household. It was, it's used in the New Testament, but, but really that's what, what I'm referring to is, is, is the oikos. We can't expect our families to be in order unless we as individuals are in order. How can you expect your family or friends to do the right thing if you ain't doing the right thing? It ain't going to happen. So the thing about it is, is that if you won't keep, get people to follow you, you better be who you say you are and live who you say you are. People get sick and tired of people talking out of both sides of their mouth. My dad used to say that all the time. He said, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. That means that I would say one thing and do another. But they get sick and tired of that. And you won't carry weight with anybody. Anybody. Period. Because people can see right through it. But the second line of defense is that family, that oikos, that, that group that is so tight-knit. That's the, Because if it breaks through the individual... You've got that oikos there that says to the individual, hey, listen, man, come on back. You know you ain't supposed to be doing this. That, that gives, it provides accountability. If we as, as body of believers, as, that's why small groups are so critical. They're so important. Our life group rollout is going on right now. And whether it's doing Krav Maga or whether it's you know, going to Doyle and Nancy, whatever life group it is, it's critical to get involved in a life group because guess what? If you're struggling, you've got a safety net there. You've got people there who can come and undergird you and give you that strength and say, look, the devil might have made it through you, but he ain't making it through us. 
That's where you begin to labor through with a brother in Christ and you begin to to work through a brother in Christ and, and restore such a one in gentleness. That's what happens. When it comes to building the kingdom of God, man, that oikos, that family is where the real ministry occurs. That's what made Jesus' ministry so effective. I mean, he took took 12 men and he turned the world upside down. He was relational. But Jesus himself was living right and walking right, and then guess what? He got his other 12 guys to buy into that and say, look, man, you guys can live this life. I've given you the power to trample on snakes and scorpions and to drink poison and all this other good stuff. I've given you keys to the kingdom. I mean, Peter walked by in his shadow starts healing people. All these works that I do, greater works you shall do. Jesus empowered the oikos that begin to impact the entire congregation and the nation and the world. But that family, that is the second line of defense. That's the, that's the inner wall. There's greater protection there. You see, Nehemiah, he got his sphere of influence involved. He got the king involved. And then he got the priests involved. He got the governors involved to to begin to give him materials to, to rebuild the kingdom. He got these key people involved. And through that, he was able to carry out his ministry, his calling, what God had placed in his heart and burned in his heart so much. And so, if we're going to build the kingdom, we got to get the people around us involved. we got to get the passion, the fire. We've got to get the motivation ourselves to do it. And then we begin to let it spill over into our family and our friends. And then it's the exponential effect. It's not multiplication. It's not addition. It begins to exponentially increase. That is how we build the kingdom of God. That is how we rebuild the walls, man. This, this country, and I'm going to read something to you guys in a few minutes. This country, we have, we have, since the 60s, you know, one person said, look, you know, I'm, I'm all for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then all of a sudden somebody else said, hey, that sounds good to me. I think I am too. And then it just began to trickle down and trickle down and trickle down. And our standards have continued to inch back and inch back and inch back. But it's time for us as the children of God and as the kingdom of God to stand up and say, I'm not giving this. I'm not giving this. You can live like that if you want to. But I'm going to show you how to live and that in turn will show you that there's a better way. We get so fiery mad about people. We boycott for this and boycott for that. Let me tell you something. It's time to quit boycotting people and making them think any worse of believers. It's time to live what you say. If you live what you say, they can't bring a negative word against you. If the love of Christ is inside of you, if it's inside of me, it'll come out of me. But if if that same hate and rage that they have for us, if that begins to overtake us, we're not, we're not doing anything. That the love of Christ would rule in our hearts, in our minds. Live it. Be it. Transformational living is what produces transformational living. People know who I used to be. All my friends knew who I used to be. I'd go do everything in the world with them. And when I first got saved, they didn't believe me. They they couldn't believe that I I had quit everything that I had quit. But it was the transformation that occurred inside of me. I didn't condemn them. I didn't send them to hell. I didn't preach at them. I didn't do any of that. I just lived my life for Jesus. And guess what? It made them uncomfortable. That's okay. But I can tell you one thing with my conscience clear. That those boys who I grew up with and loved dearly never heard a negative word come out of my mouth about them. I expressed the love of Christ. And I did not agree with the lifestyle that they were living, nor did I participate. 
but they knew my stance. They knew where I lived. And I, I, I believe that I planted seeds. And, and one day, I believe that those seeds will come to fruition. I don't know. But you know, the thing about it is, is that we play into it so much. Don't buy this product because they believe in this. Don't buy this because, you know, let's, let's just boycott Walmart. Or let's boycott, boycott Disneyland. What good is that going to do? You see, because when we begin to live what we say, one of these days, I believe, one of these days, there will come somebody who, who rises up as, as, a, as a leader of, of, the Christian, of the Christian world and, and who begins to take us on. Because you know what our business really is about? Our business should be about furthering the kingdom of God. It should be about winning souls. There are people every single day dying and going to hell, just like that. Does that bother anybody? It bothers me. You see, when we have ourselves in line and our families in line, and the next part, our congregation, our, our temple is in order, we become a force that is to be reckoned with. The next part is the congregation. There's strength in numbers. Listen to this. The Israelites were most protected and safe when all the people were in agreement and followed the path of the Lord. When they got outside of that protection, that's when they got carried into captivity every single time. You guys remember the, the sons of Korah? Moses, you know, they begin talking about, you know, man, this ain't, you know, how, how come it's got to come from Moses? This ain't right. He's, he's married a Syrian woman. And God opened up the earth and swallowed all of them. But the thing about it is, is that there's strength in numbers. When, when the people stand together, when we stand together as a body of Christ, there's power in what we can do. We're living stones built one on top of the other. And guess what? When the temple was fully complete, when every piece was in the correct spot, when the curtains were hung, when the Holy of Holies was where it needed to be, when all the gold and all the, all the rods and everything were all put up, and everybody stepped back when every piece was in its place. That's when the glory filled the temple. We want the kingdom of God to be here on earth. We want the glory of the Lord to begin to be here on earth. To be in our church services. And not just our church services, but our houses, our workplaces. The entire body of Christ collectively, we want to begin to see miracles happen and, 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 and churches you know, reporting people being raised from the dead. I'm talking about Baptist churches. If we want to see those things, then every piece is in place, one on top of the other. The temple is ready for the glory to inhabit. But we have to get the temple ready. You know, when we quit squabbling over one thing or the other, well, the Pentecostals got it right, or the Baptists got it right, or the Methodists got it right. You see, when we quit squabbling over the non-essentials, and we just say, man, we love Jesus. And however you express that, I'm all good with it. If you want to jump and run down the aisles, that's fine with me. But I want to see the kingdom of God inhabit the earth. The glory of the Lord fill the temple in a greater way than it ever has before. It, it starts with me. It starts with me. The people that I'm around that don't go to church with me, but, but I know that they listen to what I have to say, it begins to spill over and it spider webs out in such a great and incredible way, man. It travels like wildfire. It's the herd effect. 
you know, you've seen a big cow, big herd of cows, right? And one of them starts going this way, and they all go. You guys have seen the, the birds and, like, you know, this massive group of birds and, and how they all just kind of they, they fly in syncopation. It's crazy. It's the coolest thing. But I believe that the kingdom, that the, that the congregation, that the church of God can be that way. That we move in sync with one another. That we're all fulfilling the great commission to love God, love others, and to make disciples. I believe that that is when we begin to see the power of God come and inhabit this earth in a way that it never has before. It already occurs in churches around the country now. I was talking to Matt this week and, and, and out at Bethel. You know, Matt was, said he was listening to some of their services about prayer and things like that. And you see people's arms grow and legs grow. I mean, it's the craziest thing. But it's happening all across the nation. And if we can collectively get in and tap into that, man, what a force we would be. Who would need health care reform if they could come in here and get fixed? But to provide them a place where they can come and say, man, I don't know if I even believe this, but I'm going to try. Because we're so full of the Holy Spirit. We're so full of, of the kingdom that it comes out of us. Kingdom living comes out. Listen to what Nehemiah said in, in, in 2, 17 and 18. He inspired the people. He infused passion to them. And they responded. And he said, then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in now? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a disgrace, a reproach. That we may no longer be a reproach. I've got a question for you. Are we a reproach to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your lifestyle a reproach to the Lord Jesus? Does he look down at this body of his and is he pleased with what he sees or does it break his heart? And then I told them of the hand of my God which was upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me and listen to this and they said let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah helped the people see that with the walls broken down, it spoke something about its people. It spoke something about the, the nation. That they were easily plundered. When a lion goes after a wildebeest or a pack of gazelles, what does the lion pick? The weakest. The most vulnerable. The one that they don't have to expend much energy catching. And I'm here to tell you today that the enemy, if he can expend very little coming after you and it works, he's going to keep coming after you. He's going to keep coming after your family. But when we get to that place that we have fortified our walls, the outer wall, the inner wall, and the temple, he's going to start leaving us alone at some point in time because it just ain't worth the energy. It's not worth the energy. And he might come every now and again, but guess what? That onslaught that he continues to pound and pound and pound, he'll get sick of it because we're not easy prey. It's time for us to step up as the body of Christ and have a passion for his kingdom. To say that we will build it and to strengthen our hands. If the church looks like the world, what good is it? <laughs> as we practice spiritual disciplines as families, and that's why, the, and, and as, as 
individuals and as congregations. That's why it's been so incredible to do this fast, man. I have sensed the anointing of the, of the Holy Spirit more in the last two weeks, three weeks than I have in a long time. And is it because I'm, I was been fasting? Well, maybe. But it's also because you were fasting. My, my wife was fasting. You see, we're all doing it together. We're, we're shaping, we're, we're practicing the spiritual disciplines together. And the living stones are being set one on top of the other. And the temple has got everything in place that the glory may come and fill it. You see, as we begin to practice the spiritual disciplines and follow that progression, prayer, fasting, worship, reading of God's word, meeting together, as, as, as Ken was talking about this morning, breaking bread together. As we begin to do the spiritual disciplines, man, that's when things get ha- happen transformational. It changes the atmosphere. It changes the atmosphere. Nehemiah took the first step, and it rebuilt the walls. Can we do the same thing for ourselves, for our church, for our nation? I'm going to close with um, a story about Abraham Lincoln. And uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Sarah and I were getting ready for church, and, and every Sunday morning I turn on and I always record Jensen Franklin. I love Jensen Franklin. Um, he's a southern boy. He's from right around my hometown in North Carolina, you know, and he can just, I just, I just love his preaching. And um, so I was listening to him the other day, and he was talking about fasting. And it was like three days after we started our fast. And, and he was talking about Abraham Lincoln and how he had declared a fast for the nation during the Civil War. And I just thought that that was the coolest thing. And Abraham Lincoln is probably one of the most admirable men in the history of the human race. He was much like Nehemiah. His homeland was ravaged by war. He was president of this nation during its most difficult hour. We were divided, killing each other over slavery. Nation, the, the, the South had, has seceded into its own nation Imagine Abraham Lincoln's peril when half of your country says, I'm not part of this country anymore. Would you want to be in his position? But the intestinal fortitude that it took for him to be the kind of president that he was, and even in the midst of division, brought unity. Like Nehemiah, he was able to lead this nation through a restoration. And it was only because of his personal relationship with with Jesus Christ that even gave him the ability to walk this road. I'm going to read this because I found it online. President Lincoln appointed a national fast day. And I'm going to read his words. And as I read them the other day, I was in pastor's office just weeping because I believe that not only did it speak to the nation then, but it speaks to us now. He said, where is the Senate of the United States devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God? In all the affairs of men and of nations, has by a resolution requested the president to designate and set apart for national prayer and humiliation. And where it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. And to recognize the sublime truth 
announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations are only blessed whose God is the Lord. And in so much as we know that by His divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justify fear that the awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people? We have been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and in power. And as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity and redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully occurring, concurring with the views of the Senate, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart the 30th day of April 1863 as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request that all the people to abstain on that day from their own ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes and keeping this day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teaching that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country. its former happy condition of unity and peace Abraham Lincoln after that fast the nation began to heal And after that healing, the United States of America saw some of the greatest technological advancements in human history up to that point. Some of the greatest economic booms in history up to that point. The light bulb was created. We purchased Alaska for two cents an acre. The telegraph, the phone, the radio. It was when the people humbled themselves and prayed and sought God and repented 
that he poured out his spirit upon this nation. And as he declared that the nations are only blessed whose God is the Lord. Abraham Lincoln wrote that because he believed it. Because he lived it. Because he, like Nehemiah, saw the desolation that had come. And he believed, instead of cowering and resigning his presidency, that he would stand in the face of persecution and lead this nation back to restoration. It starts with you. It starts with you. It started with Nehemiah. It starts with you. Stand to your feet. Our Father in heaven. We thank you so much, Lord God, that we live in the time that we do because it's an opportunity for your kingdom to be built, for the walls to be restored. Lord God, for your, your church to stand and rise. Lord, to own the things that are ours and say, Lord, not only has this nation sinned, we've sinned, I've sinned. But Lord, our desire is to see your kingdom come. Our desire, Father God, is to see lost souls And Lord God, that we might be like Nehemiah, that we might be like Abraham Lincoln, Father. And even though the situation seems hopeless, that we can believe you upon your word. And Father, that we might rely upon it, Lord, that it would strengthen us and and give us the ability to carry out what it is that you want us to do. And before your return, Lord God, you want nothing more than to see more souls won for you. (coughs) More people, Father, walking in the way that you have set before them. Lord God, we make a commitment right now as individuals, as families, and as a congregation that we will seek you Father, that we will pursue you. Lord, that this fast wouldn't be something that we do once a year, Lord God, but that fasting would be something that we incorporate into our spiritual discipline, Father. Lord, I thank you for every person here, Father God, and I pray that you give them the courage and the strength to walk this walk in spite of naysayers and and people who may think that the task is too great as we'll see next week as Pastor preaches. But that we would have the knowing in our hearts that you are for us and that you desire to see us live your kingdom here on earth as a body as a family and as individuals Lord God thank you for Nehemiah's inspirational story Lord God and I pray that as we begin to read it through as a congregation Lord that that it would begin to change us and transform us Father, you're so good.
so good. Jesus. Bless your holy name. Mm. Magnify you, Lord. There's some hard hearts this morning that are being touched. That are coming back to you right now, Lord. Mm. I'm not going to ask you to come down to the altar because I believe that right now the Lord is doing some heart work right where you are. Father, we return to you. We return to you. We return to you. Mm. Hallelujah, Jesus. Mm. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your presence, Lord God. The touch, Lord, that you give to let us know that you're there. Father, and throughout the course of this week, Father, I pray that your your presence would be evident in our hearts. Lord, that as we continue to seek you, that you'd be found. Father, transform us, transform our families, transform your church. Make us more like you, Jesus. Make us more like you. Give us your desires. We glorify your name, Jesus. be available up here if you would like to (coughs) come up to the altar. (coughs) Elders, if you'd be available up here for people who need prayer. This week, I want to challenge you to read Nehemiah. And as we pursue this series and and as we dive into this series, I, I just want to challenge and encourage everyone as a body, if we're on the same page, reading this word. I believe that God will bring transformation in Jesus' name. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. God bless you.